Welcome listeners to the First Things Editor's Desk podcast. This is Rusty Reno here in New York, and I'm just delighted to have Michael Toscano with us for a discussion of his piece in the May 2022 issue, Ensnared in the Web. Michael Toscano is lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, and has written for us on many occasions. And, and welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Rusty. You opened the piece with what I call the prayer position, the 21st century prayer position that we often see people at coffee shops or restaurants or even at the dinner table and with their heads bowed, <laughs> but they do not have a breviary in their head in their hands, do they? <laughs> no, they do not. No, it's the, it's the, um, the glowing screen that uh, that seems to rivet us. Yes, absolutely. When did you first, uh, you know, in your, when did that, I mean, I have a hard time dating that. What was that for you? I have a series, a group of memories from when I was a young man living in New York City. I was in Brooklyn and I had, uh, was surrounded by some very fashionable hip people and <laughs> these fashionable hip people preferred their Macs. And so whenever a new um, Macintosh product was out on the market, they were the first to get it. And so all of a sudden there was this, I was surrounded by these new handhelds and I was still analog. I was, uh, I've always been slow ever since childhood to a- adopt the latest technological fad. I think I got that from my parents who were similarly slow, but it, it just became impossible to not notice that, as you said, the prayer position was, was around me everywhere I went, especially on the subway where you would have dozens of young people looking very hip, but also bending their necks down and looking uh, as if they were entranced by what they were staring into. Hmm. Now, you you say that the common word for this is addiction. We're addicted to the screens, but but you say, no, that's not quite the right, the right word. Why, why is that not the right word? Well, certainly people are addicted. And the younger they are, the more addicted they are. The reason why I don't think that is the most apt term is because it thinks about it from purely the perspective of the consumer. The consumer can't keep his hands off the device. But what it doesn't consider is the design behind it. There is a lot of intelligence that is being put into achieving exactly that outcome, which is essentially addiction on a mass scale, on a global scale. So I thought in light of that, in light of the fact that companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter are employers of some of our most talented neurologists and behaviorists, what they are tasked with doing essentially is is addicting American teens and young adults and 
teens across the world. So I thought that the proper term for that was actually control. They're seeking to control them, to grab their attention in a way that they are not being upfront about. There's a well, hidden maybe, objective there. Well, maybe to take it to a more hyperbolic term, it's not addiction, but it's enslavement. Yes. In the sense that people, we can talk, people talk about being enslaved by their addictions in the sense that they serve the addiction. But your point here is that you're not really addicted to the phone. You're addicted to what the phone is designed to feed you as you bounce from, you bounce from recommended topic to recommended topic and you go to Amazon and you might like this book or, but that's a, even, that's just a blatant form. It's much more subtle in, in other respects. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. And wherever someone is enslaved, there's always an, a, a master. master. Yeah. <laughs> the body of the piece draws on Neil Postman who was a, I mean, I think I remember reading his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, but who was Neil Postman and, and, and what was his, what was his, what was his um, take on all this? Postman is, I believe, a figure whose importance, uh, deserve it, that his importance is yet to be uh, fully realized. He was, a, an educator, first, uh, first and foremost. He received his ed D at Columbia at the Teachers College there, and he had an encounter with Marshall McLuhan, the great guru of media theory. Oh, I didn't. I mean, I just assume that McLuhan must have been hovering in the background because there are a lot of... It, he's... Postman uh, um, is more pessimistic than McLuhan, but it, it does chime with a lot of what McLuhan says. It it does, and they were they were good friends. And at, at before McLuhan was famous, you know, he would they met each other. But eventually, McLuhan was famous, so he was in New York all the time. Where Postman was, he had a a a position at NYU in the Teachers College there, and he he established an institute an institute on media ecology. Hmm. Postman was a hilarious writer, but he was. He was a social critic and he was a keen observer of the ways, because he was an educator, that these new media were affecting the education process. He wanted to reach young people and he found it incredibly difficult to begin with, but e even more difficult by the fact that their minds, as, as he saw, were being retrained by television and radio and, and other media that he saw the written word as being in contest with. You dwell on the surrender of culture to technology, a 1992 book. And I gather that in that Postman speaks about how technological change for good or for ill always involves winners and losers. So this was about how, yeah. This was an important insight for me when I was seeing all of a sudden these iPhones around me. I went searching through a through a number of thinkers. Romano Guardini's wonderful letters from Lake Como. I read McLuhan, Jacques Ellul, and I found them 
high-minded and, and often very difficult. And the solutions that they had to offer for understanding this were highly theoretical. Postman was very pragmatic in, in his thinking. And for him, the question of technology was, how do technological developments benefit me? Or how do they benefit my neighbor? Who do they benefit? And who do they and who do they not benefit? I found that to be a an easy way for me to take these significant changes and to boil them down to some fairly easy prudential questions. So Postman was himself a remarkably interesting theorist, but he never lost track of the local and he never lost track of some of the important political and social questions which we deal with on a daily basis. Is this, a, is this good for my wife? Is this good for my kid? Is this good for my students? Is this good for my country? And I, that's why I think Postman, perhaps more than any other thinker uh, on technology, is probably most useful today. I know that he was uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death is more, it's a 1985 book, so it's pre-internet. And it's a book that I, I gather is motivated by his hostility to the notion that video technology is going to be this great leap forward in education. And he thought, oh, on the contrary. <laughs> and the, the notion there that the, the, the video, the screen, I guess he anticipated the screen before it was held in our hands, that this, the screen distracts rather than informs or educates. Um, well, who are, who do you see as, uh, some of the winners and losers in the, in the, in this current iPhone age? It's important to remember that for Postman, the question of who wins and who loses also includes the question of what is humane, what is human. And so it, as young people in particular find themselves in this media-induced dysphoria. They have a difficulty appreciating, knowing, or engaging with the reality that's around them. I remember being shocked maybe about eight or nine years ago where the NFL had this campaign. It was a campaign for an active generation of kids. And I remember thinking, what? Kids are by nature active. They want to run around. They want to play. But there was a problem was kids no longer wanted to play. Mm -hmm. They were sucked into this digital world where, which seems to mediate relations, relationships with others, but really what it does is it puts them at a digital remove. It places a digital screen, quite literally, between them and others. And it replaces normal friendships, the ones that I had when I was a child and that you did and that we still do today as adults, and it digitizes them. And I think that perhaps the, those, that would be an example of a, a, a loser in our digital age would be somebody that has been stripped of engagement with reality and engagement with friends. I also think that it's clear today, especially with the way that information is being controlled by our social media platforms. I think that many of us have to uh, 
enter into the column of losers. I mean, we are, uh, it's, uh, it's just a fact that there are things that many of us think to be true and that we know are true that cannot be stated. And now that through social media, there is an instantaneous way of policing those, those things. And oftentimes social media permits you to comment on things real time as they're unfolding but that also gives you an opportunity to be punished in real time as events are unfolding. And so there, I would say that many of us, especially of a conservative mindset or who just happen to think that uh, maybe the answers are just not so clear and we need to think more deeply about things. We are the losers in this digital age. We're punished for not going along with the emerging consensus. Yeah, I also think that, I mean, your point about kids mediating so much of their lives through their phones, you know, texting, all that sort of thing, and that, I mean, because all that provides this huge, huge ocean of data that then gets mined and, and manipulated by for marketing purposes, it really means that every aspect of our life is now in the marketplace in a way that you know, in a more traditional form, if you go out in the baseball field and play pickup baseball, you know, maybe you're, you and your friends are kind of proud of your new baseball mitt, and that's a kind of commercial, you know, maybe advertising is stoked some sense that such a mitt's the best one, or your Adidas running shoes are the best ones or whatever. But for those, for a lot of your interactions, you're outside the marketplace, whereas now all of our interactions are in the marketplace. And, and that... I never quite thought of it that way. But that is, that does mean that the people, most people just want to have jobs and get on with their lives. But some people really want to build companies and make a lot of money. So if you can expand the marketplace, you're going to increase the opportunity for entrepreneurs. Uh, and surprise, no, no surprise, vast fortunes have been made. <laughs> That's a great point, Rusty. I, I, that was, uh, we are by, by our activities online, especially if we're young, we're producing content for platforms which are actually used to generate revenue for massive companies. So it's actually not quite, the line between consumer and creator on social media is is totally blurred. And there's a- I guess you're right, it's like reality TV show. Uh, I never thought of it that way, but uh, Facebook is a big giant reality TV show. <laughs> <laughs> we're, but we're providing, we're, we're producing content for our own entertainment. <laughs> yes, we're producing content and Facebook is profiting off of it. And, and uh, so it's, it's uh, our, our, uh, our contributions to our own social media enslavement are extraordinary, but maybe they could pay us back through some uh, form of uh, well, uh, profit <laughs> Yeah, right. They can pay us for our data. Let's shift gears. You... You talk about Postman's technological theory. He's a bit of a declinist. And in that sense, I guess um, he's a conservative in the sense that he cannot sustain a progressive confidence that all these changes are for the best. Um, what, what is his theory of decline? What was it about technology and, and our communication technology? Really, is what he's talking about. Because it goes back to um, the telegraph. 
Yes, uh, uh, it goes back even a little further than that. He, uh, in, in a number of his books, he does just a quick schematic of history. And one of them is uh, there's, there are tool using societies, which, of which he includes the Middle Ages, which is that there are institutions that are able to organize technologies and use them for the good of society or for the good of the people. And that transitions with the printing press to technocracy. Technocracy, he describes as basically a kind of a, an uneasy balance between this new elite, which controls machines and culture, where they permit one another to operate and they have some authority over the operations of the other. Then we've entered into, uh, he says, into technopoly. Technopoly is where literally everything needs to be organized around the advancement of machinery. And he says that culture is to be subordinated to technological advancement. So he certainly is a pessimist, pessimist in that in that sense. And but to when it comes to uh, when it comes to communications media, he sees the telegraph uh, and the Morse code as introducing into our information ecology, which is a term that he used quite a lot, uh, a, a new kind of form of communication, which is that even though the printing press uh, created media that you don't necessarily have to be speaking directly with the author of a book in order to receive the information that's contained within it, it still has the traces of humanity. There's an author. And when it comes to uh, the telegraph, what it does is it strips down uh, to the barest elements possible a form of communication and can send it from quite literally anywhere across the Atlantic was a big leap in technology and technological capability. But suddenly our newspapers in Baltimore were being filled with factoids about happenings in, say, Chicago or out in California. And what people previously had to know, what it meant to be in the know, would have been something that concerned them locally about the crops, you know, how are the crops doing, you know, like, uh, what are some of the changes that are happening down in city hall? What happened at church? But suddenly we became concerned about national things and then increasingly global things. And these occupied our mind and they took us away from our immediate surroundings. And you can see in this, his concern for why he's concerned about computers and digital, digital technology is that it takes this change yeah, amplifies it, it dramatically yes yeah. it makes it all i mean the telegraph was expensive and most people didn't use it as you say they actually got the consequences through the daily newspaper mm -hmm. which it was a kind of framing device mm -hmm. and as i as i read him you know information is not knowledge because knowledge requires context and setting um and it's certainly not wisdom <laughs> So we are in an, we are in an information rich, I mean information saturated, yes, uh, environment, but a knowledge poor environment, I guess, as I would think of it. And he called it information glut. Information glut, yeah. Um, he's got a key quote about the family, which I thought I would read, which is so important. Um, as you point out, this was, you know, there was a certain amount of. Um, despair, um, well, uh, foreboding would be maybe a better way of saying it. And this is, this is Postman. A family that does not 
or cannot control the information environment of its children is barely a family at all. <laughs> that is, that is uh, given present realities. Oof. That's, uh, yes, on. one of the things that with Postman was had just piercing insight into the way that technologies were changing our relationships with one another. In 1992, to be able to say that the computer was going to result in the uh, undermining of the family was an extraordinary insight. But now today in 2022, when everyone has their own phone, and as, as you say, people are in the prayer position around the dinner table, if they're at the dinner table at all, it's really difficult to, to, to criticize Postman for his strong words there. And I think that what has happened, especially in this digital age, is that parents have just lost control over the information environments in their homes. To be a good parent is to make choices about what your child sees and what he does not see. What, at what age he will see something and uh, whether or not he's mature enough to learn this or view this, or read this. And now with the, with the internet in particular, the barriers to outside information sources have just, been exp- have just been knocked down. They no longer exist. And now we are awash. Our families are awash in information that we can control. It's interesting that people tend to think that, you know, feral feral well you know feral dogs or feral horses you know uh, growing up um, undomesticated that our children now are kind of living these feral information wise a kind of feral childhood because it's not the case that somebody else is making those decisions really it's kind of nobody it's this weird sort of treading water in the in the information ocean aimlessly um, yeah, that's a kind of daunting thought. Um, you you conclude, as I was saying, you know, my my contact with Postman was through Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I think was a real bestseller and got assigned. I think I read it as part of, um, you know, freshman orientation for when I was a young professor. It was assigned as freshman orientation for my freshman group. That book worries about distraction, but you and with Postman, and he shifted, and you think he's astute here. The problem is not that technology will dumb us down, although it may, but rather that it'll make us all the more subject to control by others. Yes. So there, in a technological age where there is the problem of information glut, where families are being overrun by information and technology, naturally something is going to emerge that is going to seek to control it. And he ran through a few options. Bureaucracy, obviously, was one of them that he thought would assert control of information. And he has been, I think, vindicated on that point. Um, But what what we are experiencing now, essentially, is the, the use of this vacuuming up of our information that these companies are using to analyze us and they are selling this information off to the highest bidder, oftentimes to state actors and uh, increasingly so. 
Uh, and the value of this information in a highly politicized age is punishment and control. That it, as if you think the wrong thing or uh, if you act the wrong way, if you know the wrong person, you can be stripped of your digital rights. And as we in, have made the, I think, unwise move of digitizing our rights, um, now we are subject to digital punishment. And I don't think Postman, to be honest, quite saw that. I think he saw what the, the preconditions for that to emerge. If he had lived, he would have been the most astute uh, to that. He died in 2003. Um, he would have been the most astute analyst of this. But so it's, it's hard to fault him for not seeing it because uh, <laughs> he saw so much and, you know, it all developed so quickly after he had passed away. But I think Postman was really is the best at explaining to us how we got to the moment just before the control began to set in. And that's why I think he's, he's incredibly valuable because how did our defenses drop? We can look to Postman to, to teach us about how we got to the place where such extraordinary control could be exerted over us. And I fear will continue to be exerted over us. Well, there are political questions and you certainly end with evoking them, but at a personal level, why don't we kind of wrap up here and I think what, what is your, do you have, do you have, is there a practice you can commend to recover, if you will, um, to, to sort of, um, I don't know, insulate oneself or at least in some way create distance uh, so you're not quite as vulnerable to this kind of control? That's a great question. And uh, I have to say that, you know, in my professional life, I just happen to deal with a lot of parents. And this is a question, even in uh, really healthy family settings, this is a question they have all the time. I think I probably get it more than any other question about family life. And I'll just turn to Postman on this, and then I'll add a few things of my own, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. so Postman thought that the most important thing one can do is to continue to cultivate one's own humanity, one's own humaneness. Continue to be a reader. Uh, continue to, to have parties and be with friends. Uh, continue to, to hold on to the old ways. Uh, pass that on to your children. He was an educator. For him, it was all about the curriculum. What are you going to read? Um, I think that uh, that's not quite a sufficient answer, but I do think that's important. I think it's important to have colleges and schools we can, uh, and family lives where we're just holding on to the good stuff and we're just not going to let it go. Um, I think we need to put technology in its place. And uh, quite literally, uh, if you get home and you're a father of young kids or a mother from, from the office, put your phone away. Put it somewhere where it's just going to be out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and if you work from home, keep your computer in one room and don't let it travel throughout the rest of the house. And I would say there's... Laptop quarantine. Laptop quarantine, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, those are some things that we can do. I think also parents... It's a great really suggestion about coming home and turning your phone off for a half an hour. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, right. Nothing 
nothing is so important that you can't deal with it an hour later. That is true. And you start small and build from there. Maybe even get to two hours. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Well, thanks, Michael, for giving us time here on the podcast. And, and thanks especially for your piece, Ensnared in the Web, in the May 2022 issue. Thanks for having me and thanks for publishing it.